Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Episode 13, Revelation Part 2. Last week, we left off at roughly the midpoint of Revelation, just when things were really getting weird. You might recall, for example, a dragon with seven heads and ten horns, who was going off to make war with the rest of the children of the woman who is clothed with the sun. Okay, so who exactly is the dragon about to wage war against? The good guys, those who keep God's commandments and also are fans of Jesus. The dragon goes to the beach, but not for a fun weekend getaway. Standing on the shore, the dragon watches a beast, not to be confused with the dragon, right? rising out of the sea. We will call this beast the beast from the sea, because as every Hollywood producer knows, you need to leave room for the sequel. In this case, that sequel is gonna be the beast from the earth. Okay, so back to the dragon and the beast from the sea. The sea beast is another monster, leopard-like in appearance, but with bare feet and a lion's mouth. But also it has seven heads and 10 horns like the dragon. Like, honestly, this description makes no sense at all. There are crowns on top of horns, rather than on heads, where you might expect crowns to be, and blasphemous names on the heads. But as we have already seen, Revelation is chock full of symbols, and so the sea beast is not just a sea beast, but a stand-in for the Roman Empire. It has, on one of its heads, a mortal wound, but it has somehow healed from this. Maybe it's supposed to be Julius Caesar? Maybe it's supposed to be Nero? We're not totally sure. So next, the dragon gives the sea beast authority, and the sea beast blasphemes against God, and makes war on the saints, and the whole earth starts worshiping the beast. Cue the sequel, the beast of the earth. It has two horns like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. I have many questions here. Like, I definitely had to Google lamb horns, because I thought that, generally speaking, sheep don't have horns, but apparently some do. But I think maybe they aren't born with them, but develop horns as they grow. Also, some are pulled rather than horned. There's a lot to know here. If you know about lambs and their horns, or lack thereof, please write to us at our new email address, 7h. 10hpod at gmail.com. Next question, what do dragons speak like? I figured the best source here would be Game of Thrones. So I did some really serious research, and it turns out that baby dragons squeak, adult dragons roar. But no dragons that I could find in that show speak, so I think that's probably the truth. The beast of the earth is kind of like a prophet, It makes great signs, it has authority from the sea beast, and later references in the same book of Revelation make this association of the earth beast with prophecy. The earth beast encourages worship of the sea beast, which, as we've said, represents Rome and its emperors. The earth beast also makes all the unrighteous people wear a sort of mark that allows them to buy and sell in a kind of demonic economy. This is the infamous Mark of the Beast, which is identified in most manuscripts of Revelation as the number 666. More on the number aspect of this later. 
The mark of the beast must be worn on your right hand or forehead as a kind of parody of tefillin. Tefillin are little leather boxes containing verses from the Torah that attach with straps to the left hand and forehead. By this reversal, from left to right, of tefillin, John again shows that Torah-observant followers of Jesus are associated with righteousness. This is, as a reminder, a departure from Paul, who is totally okay with early Christians who don't follow Jewish law. So, it's a bit of a parody of tefillin, but in the more immediate context of Revelation, the sign of the beast is also meant as a kind of parody of the seal of God. This divine seal appears in several places in Revelation, where we learn that the divine seal is made of the name of the Lamb and the name of his Father, so Jesus and Yahweh. The divine seal also shows up in Ezekiel 9. The context there is that the temple has been desecrated, and all of the righteous people are mourning this tragedy. God sends an angel to mark those good Judeans who rejected the desecration of the temple with a mark. It's the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Tav, which in the older Hebrew script, called Ketav Ivri, is shaped like an X. This X on the forehead effectively saved the good Judeans from the murderous wrath of God's angels of death, who run around killing all the bad Judeans, which in turn sounds a lot like the Exodus narrative, in which the angel of death passes over the homes of the Israelites who mark their doors with lamb's blood. And instead, this angel of death visits the homes of the Egyptians to kill their firstborn sons. Ezekiel's Tav forehead mark and the Exodus lamb's blood are both apotropaic. They offer supernatural or magical protection for those who bear the mark. This kind of symbolic magical protection has analogs in Roman and Greek religions, but there's another Jewish tradition that also involves a sign or seal, the golem. The golem is a figure from Jewish folklore, a creature made from mud or clay in the basic shape of a human being who is brought to life, usually by a rabbi skilled in mysticism. By this method, the rabbi inscribes writing, usually the divine name or a divine name, and puts it on the forehead or in the mouth or something, or maybe around the neck of the golem. And that brings the golem to life. The word golem comes from Psalm 139 verse 16, and also appears in the Talmud to describe Adam, the first human in the early stages of creation. While golems are too polyvalent a symbol in folklore to distill into a single message, they sometimes serve as guardians and thus relate to the larger family of symbols in the Jewish tradition that are signs or seals that invoke protection, which serve as precursors for the seal of the lamb in Revelation and its parody, of course, the mark of the beast. Okay, so we talked about the position of the mark of the beast on the forehead and hand and its parodic relation to tefillin, to the divine seal in Revelation and in Ezekiel, and the apotropaic use of the divine name in the golem. Now it's time to deal with the mark of the beast itself, the number thing I mentioned earlier. In most manuscripts, it's the infamous 666, which becomes hugely important in the history of the devil 
And in a few variants of these manuscripts of Revelation, that number is not 666, but 616. The significance of the number isn't entirely clear, although the current scholarly consensus is based on Jewish numerology called gematria. You can think of it like a code language where every letter stands for a number. That means that lots of different combinations of letters could add up to 666, of course, but the best option is likely the phrase Emperor Nero. This gets transliterated into Hebrew letters and then converted into numbers. You add those numbers up and get, you guessed it, 666. Now, I did mention that some manuscripts have the number as 616, and this theory accounts for that difference because an alternate spelling of Nero's name renders the total 616. Fun fact, the earth beast is not Satan. Remember, it's the dragon who is Satan. So the mark of the beast is not technically Satan's number but it still shows up in art, literature, magic, folklore, you name it. So the devil's not in the details here, I suppose. Next question. Where do the sea beast and the land beast come from? They likely have their roots in Behemoth and Leviathan, primordial chaos monsters who had already been co-opted for apocalyptic politics in the book of Daniel. In other words, Their connections to the time of creation and to chaos are severed, and they become basically just monsters that serve as convenient symbols of the monstrous empire, purportedly a historical empire. But in both cases, with the book of Daniel and Revelation, they actually represent the occupying empire of the time. So in Daniel, for example, the monster was supposedly the ruler of the historical Babylonian empire but was actually meant to critique Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the present Seleucid ruler. In Revelation, the monsters are stand-ins for Rome, even though Babylon is also name-dropped. In the next vision, John sees the Lamb with the 144,000 righteous ones who have the Lamb's name and the Father's name on their foreheads. What are they doing, you might ask? Thank you. Great question. They are singing a new song that no one else can learn. And oh yeah, they're virgins. And the language here is quite strong. Quote, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. This seems to go beyond ordinary Jewish purity laws, dictating, for example, a period of abstinence before approaching the divine, or as ritual purification before waging war. Rather, the language of defilement in conjunction with heavenly singing sounds more like our old friends, the Watchers from the Book of Enoch, who are, as you'll remember, angels whose sexual activities with earthly women, along with the resulting offspring, are condemned. Want a refresher on the Watchers? Check out episode 7 if you haven't already. It's trippy stuff. The vision of the Lamb with 144,000 continues with announcements from various angels, including the proclamation that Babylon, i.e. Rome, is fallen and God's wrath is here for everyone with the mark of the beast. The son of man has a sickle and begins to reap the grape harvest, soon to be joined by an angel who is also reaping. 
blood flows from the winepress of the wrath of God. Eek. The image of a final horrifying harvest likely comes from Joel and Isaiah, and shows up in much of the Jewish and Christian apocalyptic literature in this period as well. This passage also inspired some of Julia Ward Howe's lyrics to the Battle Hymn of the Republic. You know, he is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored, which in turn lent the name to John Steinbeck's novel, The Grapes of Wrath. Okay, so now it's time for the seven bowls of wrath to be poured out by seven angels over the earth. These are loosely based on the plagues that God rained down on the Egyptians in Exodus, but more closely track in number, at least, to what are likely seven plagues enumerated in Psalms 78 and 105. Okay, moving to chapter 17 of Revelation, we get this dramatic passage, quote, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. So first of all, yay for seven heads, ten horns. Now the sea beast is back, and this time it's scarlet. And Rome appears again, this time in the angel's explanation of the scene to John, quote, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. These mountains probably represent the seven hills of Rome. This section, which also employs the figure of the whore of Babylon, is littered with contempt for female bodies and sexuality. And it can be read alongside the earlier passage about the sexual purity of the 144,000 from the, quote, defilement of sex with women, as well as to an earlier passage from chapter 2 where John refers to his rival, whom he calls Jezebel, who is apparently a leader of another faction of those following Christ, but who permits, like Paul, the eating of food sacrificed to idols, and also like Paul, of at least some forms of sex. John, on the other hand, is certainly against eating food sacrificed to idols, and uses images of women's sexuality as his favorite symbol for pollution and impurity. It's not hard to see the connection between this kind of denigration for women's bodies and violence against women. For more on this, see incel Twitter trolls. A bit later on, we get another scary good guy. Remember last week when Klaus mentioned monster lamb with seven eyes and seven horns? Yeah, I still get nightmares. This time, scary good guy is called the word of God, but sounds a lot like the son of man. My favorite parts, okay, quote, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And yes, this whole wine press of blood thing feels a bit done here in chapter 19, but I'm going to let it go. There's also a lot of cannibalism here, eating the flesh of kings and whatnot, meant to be a parody of the marriage supper of the lamb earlier in the same chapter. Okay, now for another good part. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and locked and sealed it over him, 
so that he would deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be let out for a little while. Again, I have questions. First question, which ancient serpent are we talking about? I mean, yay for the star of this podcast, the devil and Satan, identified here with the dragon and that ancient serpent. But honestly, there are a lot of ancient serpents scattered across the Hebrew Bible that this could refer to, Leviathan chief among them. So in case you were hoping to be like, here it is, a place in the Bible where the devil is identified with the Edenic serpent who tempted Adam and Eve in their garden paradise, then sorry to disappoint you. Please note that Satan getting thrown into a pit is totally normal stuff for demons, at least in biblical literature from roughly the same period. The story goes that those who hadn't worshipped the beast get resurrected and reign with Christ for a thousand years, also known as the millennium. The baddies, who had worshipped the beast, don't get resurrected until after the millennium, and when they do, the news is not good for them, as we will see. Anyway, after the thousand years, Satan gets to use his get-out-of-jail-free card. Which brings me to my next question. Why does the devil have to be let out? I'm going to save this one for next week, when Klaus and I will attempt to plumb the depths of this and other mysteries from Revelation. We do know what the devil does once he's released. He gathers his people for battle. Now we get Gog and Magog, who are apparently bad guy nations with fantastic villain names that also show up in Ezekiel under a slightly different guise. But then fire comes down from heaven and the devil gets thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet, aka the earth beast, were already hanging out. But what about ordinary people who are not Gog, Magog, the devil, the beast, or a false prophet? Great question. The dead get judged according to their works, which are apparently written down in books. The bad guys get thrown in a lake of fire, and then death and Hades get thrown into the lake of fire to join the devil and his pals. Next, we get a vision of the new heaven and the new earth. Heavenly Jerusalem is the bride of the lamb. Yes, the city is marrying the baby sheep. Yet another example of biblical marriage, for those of you keeping track. It's also worth thinking about. Jerusalem as a bride, as a very rare positive image associated with femininity in Revelation. I mean, I'm setting the bar rather low here. Remember, his rival Jezebel and the whore of Babylon are the context. But the allegorization or personification of Jerusalem is not particularly thorough. Jerusalem is indeed called the wife of the lamb, but still resembles a city, albeit one decorated with pretty jewels. I still think it's worth thinking about in relation to the whore of Babylon and Jezebel, though, because of this line, quote, But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Again, femininity is always in danger of pollution, etc. This vision of the new heaven and the new earth also includes a warning for specific groups of sinners, quote, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, or perhaps the unbelieving, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
Hell here is cast mainly as a punishment for sinners, which might sound unremarkable, except that there is some tension in the New Testament more broadly, and certainly throughout the first couple of millennia of Christianity, on the question of what counts as damnable, and whether that has more to do with faith or works. The holy city also features a river of the water of life, as well as the tree of life. While we don't quite return to the Garden of Eden here, we get a glimmer of it in the tree. In the Genesis narrative, recall that there are, of course, two trees of special note. The tree of life, which lets those who eat of it live forever, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That second tree is the one that produced the fruit which the serpent convinced Eve to eat. And that tree makes no appearance here, perhaps to forestall any possibility of a cyclical structure in which humanity could again fall, in effect, restarting salvation history, the necessity for a Messiah, etc. But this absence has consequences. Revelation presents a rather flat view of eternity for the blessed. Quote, Nothing accursed will be found here, that is, in the heavenly Jerusalem anymore. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. A bit of a snooze fest, frankly. It's as if John's vision of retribution to his Roman enemies, which sparks such dramatic and vivid visions of angels pouring bowls of plagues, monstrous beasts, and similarly monstrous divinities, suddenly runs out of gas at the finish line as his vision retreats into generalities and wraps itself in shrouds of prophetic mystery. Fun fact. John seems to be ignorant of the tradition of Lucifer as the morning star, since in a couple of places, including here at the end of the book, he refers to Christ as the morning star. So how are we meant to read Revelation? If it's a prophecy for telling future events, then what effect does the prophecy have on the present? A clue gives us an inkling in the last chapter, quote, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. In other words, I'm angry at Rome and hate the current world order, etc., but I am, I mean, God is, coming for you in the end. This is typical apocalyptic lit rage here. The time is coming. You'll get your comeuppance but it's a kind of secret knowledge that rather conveniently explains why things aren't going John's way in the present. Everything is normal for now, John seems to admit, but stay tuned. Just like you should stay tuned for our next episode, coming soon, when Klaus and I will discuss the high points of our respective rambles through Revelation. Say that 10 times fast. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Ward, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you. <laughs>